Reflections on W. H. Auden's New Year Letter by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 Auden is using Kierkegaard's categories for his uh, probings into the modern spiritual condition. And after this poem, New Year Letter, was written, reflecting back on it, he said that in Part 3 of that poem, that what he was trying to do was to achieve the restoration of the state of grace in which the aesthetic and the ethical are one. He begins, however, as he did in section one, with a depiction of two scenes, one an aesthetic, and one, one an aesthetic scene, and one which uh, cries out for an ethical response. Uh, but he isolates them, as he did in section one. In section one, uh, there was the turmoil uh, in the world and specifically in Europe, which was uh, leading to and had, in fact, already led to the, the outbreak of World War II. And there was that special moment on Long Island with everybody listening to the Buxtehudos, Pasacalias, uh, uh, and so on. So, but isolated, and he admits that they're isolated. And likewise, when he uh, starts Section 3, uh, he has... Uh, these two worlds separate, but he does not want them. He knows that they cannot remain separate. So it begins this way. Across East River in the night, Manhattan is ablaze with light. No shadow dares to criticize the popular festivities. Hard liquor causes everywhere a general detente. And care for this state function of goodwill is diplomatically ill. The old year dies a noisy death. Now, the poem is the New Year letter. It's about moving into the new year, not only the new uh, annual year, but the new uh, year of the decade and the new epoch. Uh, And he notices that the old one is dying a noisy death, which is a commentary on World War II as much as it is on the New Year's Eve celebration in Manhattan. The old year dies a noisy death. And he notes that uh, no shadow dares to criticize the popular festivities. Uh, Hard liquor causes everywhere a general detente. In other words, the the conflict, the internal conflict, the strife, uh, the mimetic rivalries, etc., are being uh, neutralized or sublimated or repressed via uh, hard liquor and other uh, forms of narcosis, uh, chemical and otherwise. And the old year is dying a noisy death. He refers, by the way, to CARE, capital C. (laughs) CARE is diplomatically ill. Uh, That's a reference to Goethe's Faust in which uh, this this specter haunts Faust at the very moment when Faust tries to... uh, to, to uh, levitate into this, into this pseudo-romantic uh, swoon of his, gray care comes along. And gray care represents a kind of deep, uh, uh, unspecified uh, foreboding uh, that ruins the party. So for the time being, in, at the New Year's celebration in Manhattan, uh, care is diplomatically ill, and the party goes on. So that's one scene. And now, remember, he's writing to his friend Elizabeth, a German woman. And so he speaks to her directly. Warm in your house, Elizabeth, a week ago at the same hour, 
I felt the unexpected power that drove our ragged egos in from the dead ends of greed and sin to sit down at the wedding feast. Using wedding feast here, metaphorically, as it's been used throughout the Judeo-Christian tradition, as the anticipation of the messianic banquet, of the great time when all, all will be reconciled and all will be brought into the, to the, to the great uh, messianic feast. So an unexpected power took over and drove our ragged egos in from the dead ends of greed and sin, and we sat down at this wedding feast. And then these next four lines are particularly poignant and instructive, I think. This wedding feast, or, or Elizabeth, who had, who, uh, had uh, uh, arranged it, arranged us so that each and all, the erotic and the logical, each felt the placement to be such, the seating arrangement to be such, that he was honored overmuch. Now, this is the special feature of this gathering. Uh, it, it is that... Uh, very much, this, by the way, is a little bit of an echo of Babette's feast. You see, it's the, it's the coming together under other terms. It's a, a community free of the mimetic agitations and the compensated insecurities and, rich, and, and rival aspirations uh, that preoccupy us when we meet one another elsewhere. In other words, it's a, it's a moment set apart from what from what uh, Glenn Tinder called the harsh process of mutual appraisal. Uh, it's an agape moment, a wedding feast, where the arra- seating arrangement was such that everybody felt that he or she was at the head of the table. Now, one can go back through Paul's writings and discover this uh, injunction uh, being woven into his writings which is that we must all, everyone has a place that is equal to everybody else's place. We must not fall into these little rivalries that have haunted all other uh, uh, community. We must not say, I'm for Paul and I'm for Barnabas. or We must not say, um, the, the head is better than the foot, etc. So Paul brings in all these metaphors to try to say, what we're trying to convene is the agape feast in which, and, and, Auden, and Paul was, I guess, poet enough uh, when he got uh, moved, but uh, Auden, being the poet he is, expresses it wonderfully. Arranged us so that each and all, the erotic and the logical, each felt the placement to be such that he was honored overmuch. And as with the earlier scene on Long Island, music plays its part. And Schubert sang, and Mozart played, and Gluck and food and friendship made our privileged community that real republic which must be the state all politicians claim even the worst to be their aim. So in effect, he says, we achieved it right there. We achieved that republic towards which all of that political striving is directed. We arrived. But also, he says, it was some unexpected power that brought it about. 
and it was a privileged community. That is to say, it's, a, it's set off. Now, I just want to fi- echo this with some things that we have uh, studied over the, the, the last uh, months and years. In Babette's feast, we have another instance of this wedding feast, and it was one in which the, uh, the, the mimetic entanglements were dissolved in the course of the feast. And I'll just read you a couple of passages from Isaac Denison's story, Babette Feast, to give a flavor for that, which is an echo of what Auden is talking about. In the story it says, The two old women who had once slandered each other, now in their hearts went back a long way, past the evil period in which they had been stuck, to those days of their early girlhood, when together they had been preparing for confirmation, and hand in hand had filled the roads round Berlevag with singing. There's a little hint here of this, this being the, uh, uh, that this feast being the outgrowth of the confirmation ritual as well. But towards the end of that description, uh, Denison says this, The vain illusions of this earth had dissolved before their eyes like smoke, and they had seen the universe as it really is. They had been given one hour of the millennium. Uh, Denison had said uh, that this Babette's feast uh, gave them one hour of the millennium, and uh, Auden will go on to say the same thing. But first he wants to put it into a larger context. It happens every day to someone. Suddenly the way leads straight into their native lands. The Temenos' small wicket stands wide open, shining at the center the well of life that they may enter. So he's talking about those moments that I trust we've all experienced uh, in at one degree of intensity or another when uh, suddenly and unexpectedly there is an opening and often it seems it's the opening in an otherwise uh, overcast uh time in one's life, an opening, and the, the door is wide open and the well of life is there and uh, we enter and experience it. Though compasses and stars cannot direct to that magnetic spot, nor will, nor willing not to will, for there is neither good nor ill but free rejoicing energy. Now, this comes, a number of things should be said about this. There is no road to Grace's house. That's what uh, Thomas Merton said in one of his great poems. Uh, Her mailbox is stuffed full of valentines, uh, but there is no road to Grace's house. We can't, neither will nor willing not to will. There's no little strategy one can use for getting to, uh, arriving at this experience. Yet, any time, how casually, out of his organized distress and accidental happiness. Suddenly, out of our organized distress comes the accidental happiness. Isn't that it? And, of course, Auden is recognizing that that is the nature of the thing. We who have been trained to the cause and effect uh, cosmos, the Newtonian reality, we tend to think, and this is how we end up in these terrible situations which Auden is about to describe, we tend to think this, it, suddenly the door is open and the well of life is there and we enter and we, 
and after after we're after it starts to fade, we think, now wait a minute, what did I do right before that happened? And maybe if I go back and do that again, see, uh, maybe if I pour myself another glass of red wine, <laughs> or uh, you know, have another affair, or walk down that same road, you see. Somehow I can make, and, and, and often we've all done that, and sometimes we get stuck in that, in that uh, repetition for a short period of time, some, sometimes for a long period of time. What did I do that made that happen? Let me do that again. And, and Auden says, it's, it's out of our organized distress that this accidental happiness intrudes. Catching man off his guard will blow him out of his life in time to show him the field of being where he may, unconscious of becoming, play with the eternal innocence in unimpeded utterance. So this sudden thing blows us out of our life in time into being as opposed to becoming. Now this is, these are standard philosophical categories that Auden is going to be using in conjunction with the Kierkegaard uh, overlay and the question about will and so on. Uh, become, being is a place, uh, by Kierkegaard standards, being is the place of the aesthetic, where, no, where one simply is. One is not uh, making uh, will, not exercising one's will and choosing this or that. He's talking about a moment when suddenly this thing blows us out of the world of becoming into the world of being. I brought two probably familiar to you all passages just to echo this and explore it a little bit more. Uh, the first from uh, from Yeats. Uh, I thought of it uh, particularly because it says out of his organized distress and accidental happiness. And this is a, a poem... Uh, uh, Yeats wrote at a time of distress and I particularly like the first two lines he says no longer in Lethean foliage caught begin the preparation for your death Lethe is the river of death and uh, he, he, he says he's been caught in Lethean foliage uh, and now no longer caught in Lethean foliage. And uh, he, he says one must begin to prepare for death. As though to be caught in Lethean foliage and to see one's mortality clearly are two totally different things. To be caught in Lethean foliage is to be subject to uh, Goethe's gray care, Faust's gray care. You see, it's vague. It's a, a vague anxiety that has to do with one's limitations and an ultimate limitation of mortality. Uh, but to prepare oneself consciously uh, to be a mortal creature and to have to face death is something altogether different from being caught in the Lethean foliage. Well, anyway, so here's Yeats. Uh, no longer in... So, so what he's talking about is suddenly there's a break in the, in the thicket. No longer in Lethean foliage caught begin the preparation for your death. My 50th year had come and gone. I sat, a solitary man, in a crowded London shop, an open book, an empty cup, on a marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed. And twenty minutes more or less, it seemed, so great my happiness, 
that I was blessed and could bless. Well, I bring it in just to have us feel through the poet's uh, senses that special moment. And, of course, we couldn't move on without uh, referring back to one that seems almost consciously in Auden's mind. Uh, Auden uh, had read the four quartets, uh, or at least those that had been published when he was writing this poem, and uh, Burnt Norton had been published, and he quotes uh, from Eliot's work uh, uh, often. So we know he's familiar with it. He almost seems consciously familiar with this passage and some of the, some of the uh, passages of the New Year letter. So speaking of the accidental happiness that catches us off our guard and blows us out of the world of becoming into the world of being, uh, Eliot uh, recorded that in Burnt Norton uh, this way. There they were as our guest, accepted and accepting, so we moved and they in a formal pattern along the empty alley, into the box circle, to look down into the drained pool. Dry the pool, dry concrete, brown-edged. You see, that's the lethean foliage in a way. That's that seemingly overcast moment when it is really empty and dry and brown. And the pool was filled with water out of sunlight. And the lotus rose quietly. Quietly, the surface glittered out of the heart of light, and they were behind us, reflected in the pool. That's the kind of experience I think Auden is talking about. And now he has some wisdom to share with us on it. Uh, and the wisdom begins, of course, with the word, but, <laughs> as, as wisdom sometimes does. <laughs> But perfect being has ordained it must be lost to be regained. And in its orchards grow the tree and fruit of human destiny. And man must eat it and depart. At once with gay and grateful heart, obedient, reborn, reaware. So it must be lost to be regained. We must eat the fruit of that special moment like the, like the meal that Bebet and then we must depart. Eliot, who, has, who uh, described to us that pool that filled with water out of sunlight, right after that experience, he says this, Then the cloud passed and the pool was empty. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. It must be lost to be regained. And Auden goes on with this poem. For if he stop an instant there, the sky grows crimson with a curse. The flowers change color for the worse. He hears behind his back the wicked padlock itself. From the dark thicket, the chuckle with no healthy cause and helpless sees the crooked claws emerging into view and groping for handholds in the low ground coping as horror clamors from the well, for he has sprung the trap of hell. Now before it was the well of life. The, the Temenos' small wicket stood open. He enters and there's the well of life. And then 
the false move is to try to hang on to it. And that springs the trap of hell. Of course, manna was the was a response to the organized distress, uh, to use Auden's term, uh, that was being experienced by the sojourners in the wilderness. And uh, so God sent manna. And here's how the story goes in chapter 16 of Exodus. This is Yahweh's command. Everyone must gather enough of it for his needs, one omer ahead, according to the number of persons in your families. Each of you will gather for those who share his tent. The sons of Israel did this. They gathered it, some more, some less. When they measured in an omer what they had gathered, the man who had gathered more had not, had not too much, and the man who had gathered less had not too little. Each found he had gathered what he needed, which is very much like uh, Auden saying, uh, we, when we sat at that table, Elizabeth, everybody felt that he or she was in the place of honor. We were all... In other words, these special moments involve a momentary abandonment of what Gerard calls the mimetic struggle. Uh, that is set aside. We are not looking at each other out of the corner of our eye to see how we're doing because that glance uh, is the thing that ruins it. And we've, we've been brought into a place where that's not happening. <clears throat> and then Moses says, No one must keep any of it for tomorrow. But some would not listen to Moses and kept part of it for the following day and it bred maggots and smelled foul. See? There you have it. That's the sprung the trap of hell, exactly. That's where when we cling to it and we think, I'm going to hold on to this. But it's even the, 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 um, the nuance uh, continues because then Moses says, Yahweh says this, fill an omer with it and let it be kept for your descendants to let them see the food that I fed you with in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So you cannot keep it for the next day, but you must somehow preserve it for the next generation. Huh? Now that to me is the, is the best metaphorical description of the, the the nature of a living tradition that I that that I know of. You cannot keep it for the next day. You cannot hold on to it. We're on a journey. You can't. It, we're not to become traditionalists. Uh, we're not to try to cling to it. But still, in all, it must be preserved for the next generation and the one after that, uh, so that they know that this is a possibility and that they know what kind of universe they inhabit. And having brought up the question of hell, Auden is going to explore hell a little bit. Hell is the being of the lie that we become if we deny the laws of consciousness and claim becoming and being are the same. So again, using philosophical categories here, we would like for it to be the same. We would like to be able to say either we better get out there and work at it or go with the flow. We would like to be one or the other. Uh, but the paradox won't 
fit those two opposites. It's somehow a mystery. Uh, we must struggle in the world of becoming and know all the while that the world of being awaits us at any moment. And so he goes on to talk about hell. And he says the fire of hell is the pain to which we go if we refuse to suffer. Uh, this is, uh, Auden was also reading Carl Jung at the time he was writing this poem. And Jung, you know, has that stunning comment that uh, neurosis is a substitute for legitimate suffering. In Auden's notes, uh, there's this one, which may or may not be germane to the poem, but I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's a wise one, and I, so I thought I'd share it with you. He says this, It is possible that the gates of hell are always standing wide open. The lost are perfectly free to leave whenever they like. But to do so would mean admitting that the gates were open. That is, that there was another life outside. This they cannot admit. Not because they have any pleasure in their present existence, but because the life outside would be different, and if they admitted its existence, they would have to lead it. They know this. They know that they are free to leave, and they know why they do not. This knowledge is the flame of hell. Now, this, this part of the poem is about will. Remember, he, he's picturing the aesthetic moment, a beautiful aesthetic, aesthetic moment, but now he wants to find out how does that relate uh, to the ethical dilemma, what's happening in Manhattan, what's happening in Europe, uh, the real terrible crisis of history and culture. We cannot, then, will heaven where is perfect freedom, our wills there must lose the will to operate. Uh, you know, the souls in, in paradise tell Dante, uh, our peace is in his will. Uh, heaven is where uh, my will and God's will become indistinguishable. So we don't will there the way we do here. See. But will is free not to negate itself in heaven. <coughs> We're free to will ourselves up purgatory still. So will is useless in heaven, and a, and, a, and a part of the damnation of hell, uh, but it is, its function, really its function, is purgatorial. Purgatory is the world of becoming, the world of the ethical, the world of choice, the world of the struggle and the confusion. And let me just put this in perspective by quoting this passage from Buber. The free man is he who wills without arbitrary self-will. He knows the matter will not turn out according to his decision, but what is to come will come only when he decides on what he is able to will. I've always thought that sentence had uh, one or two extra verbs in it. Uh, but the, the, the point of it is that one has to decide what one is able to will. These are just phrases, but the difference between being willful and willing. Now, to be willing is the mystery because it involves both will and consent. So he says, uh, we wake from the dream of glory and find ourselves in purgatory. Back on the same old mountainside with only guessing as our guide. To tell the truth, although we stifle the feeling, are we not a trifle relieved to wake on this damp earth? It's been our residence since birth. And then he says, this is where we belong, where everyone is doing wrong. 
If we do not move, we fall, yet movement is heretical. Since over its ironic rocks no route is truly orthodox, oh, once again let us set out our faith well balanced with our doubt. Admitting every step we make will certainly be a mistake. So he says we ascend the penitential way that forces our wills to be free with what he calls a reverent frivolity. And that's so Auden-esque, you know. Uh, it's it's like world, uh, heavenly worldliness, a reverent frivolity. You don't get Eliot talking that way. Now, Eliot can't be... Eliot's incomparable. Uh, but uh, we need a little... Uh, we need Auden to tell us about reverent frivolity. But then he turns to the problems of history and uh, wonders what to do. Whichever way I look, I mark importunate along the dark horizon of immediacies. The flames of desperation rise from signalers who justly plead their cause is piteous indeed. Bewildered, how can I divine which is my true Socratic sign? Which of these calls to conscience is for me the causus foderis, the the demanding cause, the binding cause. From all the tasks submitted, choose the athlon I must not refuse. The athlon is the struggle or the contest. What do I give my life to? What do I give my life to? Well, this is where he, he, he encounters a kind of Hamlet-like uh, uh, momentary paralysis when he looks at the world. And, and who hasn't? He says, a particle, I must not yield to particles who claim the field. Uh, a, a heresy, technically, is something, a part of the truth that claims to be the whole truth. And so he says, I am a particle. I can't, I must not turn my life over to some other particle that claims to be the whole thing. Nor trust the demagogue who raves a quantum speaking for the waves. Now this is part of his wit, you see. First of all, he's using the metaphor of, of, of physics, quantums and waves, you know, particles and waves. Um, but also this pun on the word waves. He's talking about the demagogue uh, who raves a quantum speaking for the <coughs> waves of the crowd, you see. Uh, nor worship blindly the ornate grandeza of the sovereign state. So he looks out there and he says, wait a minute, everywhere I look, uh, the forces of history are gathering up in what, is, uh, in, in, in what I now know to be part of the problem. He has a kind of Hamlet dilemma here. What do you do? How do you participate without becoming a partisan and, and getting caught up in the blindness that is, that is part and parcel of being a partisan? Auden says, where to serve and when and how? Oh, none escapes these questions now. And then he says, here's the problem. The future which confronts us has no likeness to that age when, as Rome's hugger-mugger unity was slowly knocked to pieces by the coordinated blows of artless and barbaric foes, the stressed and rhyming measures rose. Now, what he's referring to is the fall of Rome. But he says, back in the fall of Rome, you see, there was, that you could tell the players without a scorecard. There were, the, there were those people who were 
the champions of civilization, albeit a Pax Romana, let's not be, be, be too romantic about that civilization, but still in all, uh, there was something that, it, that there was a kind of order over here, and then there were these barbarians over here, and one could, they weren't, they were separate. You could tell who they were. And he says that's changed. And also he refers here to, uh, when that happened, he says the stressed and rhyming measures rose. Uh, in some way, uh, bringing in that raw energy uh, and the slow uh, assimilating of that raw barbaric energy uh, gave rise to uh, the synthesis that begins with Augustine and ends with Dante. Uh, so it's uh, so he says that was one historical epoch, and now we're dealing with another one. The cities we abandon fall to nothing primitive at all. This lust in action to destroy is not the pure instinctive joy of animals, but the refined creation of machines and mind. As out of Europe comes a voice compelling all to make their choice. He's talking about Hitler. A theologian, he says. A theologian who denies what more than 20 centuries of Europe have assumed to be the basis of civility. And this voice out of Europe uh, alerts us to what Auden calls the metaphysics of the crowd. That's a very Girardian, uh, has a very Girardian echo to it. You see, the metaphysics of the crowd. Uh, and, and, and the metaphysics of the crowd is operating regardless of which side you're on. You see, the revolutionary or the counter-revolutionary, the left or the right. This problem of the metaphysics of the crowd haunts history. So where's the athlon I, I must not refuse? Where's the contest I must not refuse? Well, now at this point, this point is somewhat prophetic. Um, it has no prophetic pretensions, but it's prophetic in the sense that the pattern it fo follows is one that I think uh, many of us have followed. At, the, at this moment, uh, the poem turns inward uh, to uh, depth psychology. Uh, there's a catalog of places in Europe and uh, England, places and personalities uh, that Auden associates with special moments of his youth. Uh, perhaps here an echo of Eliot's quartets to some extent, where he says, I was first aware of self and not self, death and dread. And now... Uh, take, I think we're to see this, or I invite you to see this, as, as looking out at the world and being bewildered and perplexed about what to do and turning, knowing one has to consult uh, one's, oneself or one, the mystery of one's inwardness uh, before continuing with that question of what to do with my life. He said the adits, the adits are, are entrances into deep mind shafts. Adits were entrances which led down to the outlawed, to the others, the terrible, the merciful, the mothers. It's a wonderful thing. That's the deep psyche. And he returns. He goes back. He does the uh, anamnesis. Uh, the, the recollection of the early experiences and then from there he begins the, the plunge into the deep psyche. 
down to the outlawed, to the others, the terrible, the merciful, the mother. Alone, in a hot day, I knelt upon the edge of shafts and felt the deep, pardon my pronunciation, Urmuderfrucht that drives. Urmuderfrucht is a, a, the, the fear or dread of the, of the first mother. Phrase representing the primordial, uh, the, 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 uh, the alarm at discovering the primordial depths of, uh, of one's being. Alone, so I'll substitute some English phrase here. Alone in the hot day I knelt upon the edge of shafts and felt the deep primordial fear that drives us into knowledge all our lives. The far interior of our fate to civilize and to create. The feminine that bids us come to find out what we're escaping from. Now that I think is just absolutely crucial for anyone who is considering the question of what is my responsibility in the world. Uh, because unless we somehow first wrestle with this, or, or maybe perhaps not first, but at some point wrestle with this deeper question, uh, it is possible to go out and assume that we are responding to a summons when in fact we are being driven by an escape from something. That our life... You could think of that as, as, is my life a response to a summons or is my life being driven? And uh, to be driven is to be fleeing from something or to be pushed by some anxiety uh, as opposed to a summons. So it's, it's appropriate somehow in this poem. The po- I don't know what exactly what Auden's intention was, but it's appropriate that the poem would pause at this point and and require this uh, excursion into one's own depths. Because if not, uh, we might go out into the world thinking that we are responding to this, this athlon and must not refuse, when in fact we're escaping from something. And then there's this wonderful passage where he says, there, now he's leaning over this shaft into the abyss, there I dropped pebbles, listened, heard the reservoir of darkness stirred. Now, I think we've done that. Most of us have done that, where we, we, need, we, need, we, need, a, we need an answer. We need to know. We need to make some connection. And all, of course, we can do is drop pebbles and listen. And he hears the reservoir of darkness stirred. And then follows a quotation from Wagner Siegfried. Brunhilde says, Oh, thy mother will not return to you. Thou thyself am I, thy duty and thy love. And Auden says, And I was conscious of my guilt. And the next line is, But such a bond is not an ought. He's looking for what he ought to do. He says, Now in that other world I stand, and earth made common by the means of hunger, money, and machines. Now he's back into the, to the other world. Where each determined nature must regard that nature as a trust, 
that being chosen, he must choose, determine to become of use. Each one knows the day is drawing to a close. And he says, no matter what we do, we all secretly know that that is true, that all the special tasks begun by the Renaissance have been done. It's a new epoch. Uh, and then he reviews what's been done since the Renaissance in a way. He says that when unity had come to grief upon professional belief, I think that's the, the unity achieved, that's the Augustine to Dante uh, epoch, another unity was made by equal amateurs in trade. It was a unity made out of uh, the noise and horror, the opinions of artillery, the barracks chatter and the yell of charging cavalry, the smell of poor opponents roasting out of Luther's, Luther's faith and Montaigne's doubt. And what emerged from that for Auden is the, the new Anthropos, an empiric economic man, homo economicus, okay. homo economicus, who has solved the problem of what should I do in the, with the oldest possible formula, uh, with a new spin on it. Now, the oldest formula, of course, is the mimetic one. Uh, and the new spin is called supply and demand. And that is that value is created by uh, reference to uh, how rare the desired object is and how many people desire it. And that is the oldest formula for mimetic, the whole mimetic entanglement system. Uh, but it's one that uh, has substituted for a sense of where we're really going. And it is capable of generating enormous uh, economic and other activity. Uh, and uh, we, got, we happened on to it. We lost uh, some other sense of what we might be doing, uh, but we found a way of unleashing the, uh, the tremendous power of the mimetic system in a modern form. Empiric economic man, the urban, prudent, and inventive, profit his rational incentive and work his whole exorcitus the individual, let loose to guard himself, at liberty to starve or be forgotten, free to feel in splendid isolation, or drive himself about creation in the closed cab of occupation. In one of his notes, he says, the great error of the Romantics was their failure to recognize that the bourgeois were not real devils, but false angels. Auden says about this new empiric economic man, he did what he was born to do, prove some assumptions were untrue. He had his half success. He broke the silly and unnatural yoke of famine and disease that made a false necessity obeyed. Here's what Auden said. As far as I know, Kierkegaard was the first to distinguish accurately between tribulations all the troubles that come upon us that we have that have to be endured, and temptations, all the 
conflicts that must not be endured, but must be solved with acts of will. Auden then says, Sciences have as their aim the transformation of tribulations into temptations. Why is this desirable, he says? Because it turns an insoluble problem of passive endurance into a soluble problem of conduct, an aesthetic into an ethical problem. For instance, I live in the floodplain. Every 30 years, uh, my place is wiped out. Uh, is, that, is that a, a tribulation or a temptation? Now, speaking of temptations the way Kierkegaard does, which is, sh- should that rally my will or should I consent to that? Well, there you have it. Well, what if it's 10 years instead of 30? <laughs> or what if it's 100 years instead of 30? <laughs> you see, what... what uh, well, the point is that empiric economic man uh, s- said some of these have to be, some of these aren't tribulations at all. They're temptations. Get off your dove and do something about it. And then Auden talks about psychology. He says, he has a thing, why is psychology dangerous? His answer is because it tempts a man to think that since the suffering of his tribulation can be removed, he will not have to suffer at all. But the ethical justification of psychotherapy, as of all applied sciences, is this. It is always sinful presumption for a man to endure more than he has to or to imagine that he is more extraordinary than he really is. Nevertheless, he will always have much to endure and he will always be extraordinary. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) Empiric economic man did sort out some of that. He said, not all those tribulations are tribulations. You need to do something about it. But but then Auden says, well, wait a minute. There are going to be tribulations. So empiric economic man has left us with this confusion about what is a tribulation and what is a temptation. Uh, What should we consent to and what should we uh, challenge with an act of will? And Auden had said that he was looking for that, the restoration of the state of grace in, with, in which the, est- the aesthetic and the ethical uh, were one. It's stunning to find people who have found a paradoxical unity uh, between consent and will. Uh, people in whom will and consent are indistinguishable. Uh, Moses and Jesus, for instance. Uh, This week, uh, I I think of uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, who spent 27 years in prison and uh, who is is the person, in a way, whose whose consent-will is in charge in South Africa on a moral level. Uh, And one can't tell in his life where consent leaves off and will begins. At least right now one can't. And that is always a stunning thing. Uh, But every uh, paradox has its parody. And the parody is in those, and it's true of all of us at some point, who exercise what... Buber calls arbitrary self-will, uh, choice freedom, what we talked about earlier as choice freedom, 
But this exercise of arbitrary self-will is a symptom of a spiritual resignation. So it's the parody of the paradox. So Auden says, whichever way we turn, we see man captured by his liberty. You see? Free, but captive. And that, I think, is because uh, we exercise arbitrary self-will in such a way that it becomes a symptom of our spiritual resignation. We see, we suffer, we despair when he looks out on that world again. We see, we suffer, we despair. The well-armed children everywhere who envy the self-governed beast now know that they are bound at least Die Aufgergetten without pity, destroying the historic city. Die Aufgergetten uh, is from a uh, play by Goethe, which means the agitated ones. And it's these agitated ones, the well-armed children, who envy the self-governed beast and who now know that they are bound, uh, who are destroying without pity the historic city. A, 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 the point at which nihilism gives birth to a sort of recreational violence. In a note to this passage in the poem, Auden says, he speaks of a German refugee in his 30s who had a very exciting youth. He had um, been with the uh, Army of the Weimar Republic, uh, then he had been in the Nazi movement, uh, and then he was a supporter of Otto Strasser who broke with the Nazis, and then he went to Spain and fought with the Loyalist. And when in his 30s he was asked if he had ever been happy, said, quote, Yes, there was a peasant rising in Bavaria, and we threw bombs. End quote. I, I read that not for itself, but to show what Auden had in mind when he wrote this passage. Uh, the, kind of, uh, the kind of nihilism, the crisis of will, finally, that gives birth at its further uh, extremes to a sort of recreational violence. Well, I was thinking about this when I, uh, always a dangerous thing to do on Monday, uh, read the paper. Part three of this poem began, Across East River in the night, Manhattan is ablaze with light. No shadow dares to criticize the popular festivities. This poem, this story in New York Times, front page of the New York Times, begins with the sentence, it was Shadow's coming out party. Her initiation into the tiny Diabolus girls gang in the Watts district, and she was dressed in, in the height of gang fashion. Now this is a story about, uh, by the way, if you want to know how it is that the Timonos' agenda changes course. This reading this story, I think, changed the direction of that of these classes for the next few months. It really was a a, a troubling thing to read for me. Uh, but this is a story about fourteen to eighteen year old girls in the Los Angeles area who are joining gangs, girl gangs. <clears throat> now uh, the. Auden had recognized that his, this uh, gathering at his friend Elizabeth's house was a privileged community. And these girls are not uh, privy to that privileged community. 
They don't have it. Uh, and his community, that gathering was like Babette's feast. Uh, it, it was a kind of a sacramental gathering, sacramental gathering of sorts. And these girls don't have that. And they fall back on its, uh, uh, its distant relative, the sacrificial gathering. So let me just read you passages of this as a way of uh, either going off on a tangent, you'll have to decide yourself, or as a way of elucidating uh, this passage in Auden where he talks about the well-armed children finally coming to the point of uh, nihilism where uh, they resort to recreational violence. The story says this. The ceremony, this is the initiation ceremony for this uh, a girl who's... Uh, who's uh, club name is Shadow. The ceremony was in Giggle's backyard behind two rusting automobiles where there was some privacy from the curious young men who lounged nearby with members of their own gang and from the youngsters on roller skates who chased the armored ice cream wagon with its tinkling bell. Somebody hold my gold, said Giggles, taking off her rings and wrapping a purple bandana around her right hand. Then, as 20 young members counted off the seconds in a loud teenage chorus, Giggles, Shy Girl, and Rascal performed the initiation they call accordion, a 13-second beating that ended with tangled hair, smudged lipstick, and a bloody nose. The accordion, which mimics the similar but often more violent initiation ceremony of male gangs, is an expected event in the childhood of many girls in the inner city where gangs offer a social structure and a sense of identity that members may not find elsewhere. I'm not reading this story in order to point a tut-tut finger at these girls, uh, but in order to recognize how it is they are struggling in their own way, the only way they have available to them, apparently, uh, to achieve some kind of meaningful community. These gangs, the story says, offer a social structure and a sense of identity that members may not find elsewhere. At her court inn, a girl is christened with the nickname by which she will be known. Now the word christened, it comes from the old English word which means to Christianize. Lest we miss what's going on here. This is a reversion at, at about the time, the age, when in a traditional uh, Christian society, the sacrament of confirmation would be experienced. This is a reversion to a sacrificial cult to take care of the same problem. So she is christened with a nickname by which she will be known, as one former gang member put it, and she suddenly finds that uh, there are 30 or 40 people ready to die for her. If she fails to do her part as a loyal gang member, she can face a court out in which there is no time limit to the beating. And it makes me want to return to this question of sacrament and sacrifice. Auden then goes on and says... He then says, in a sense he says, well, that's going to happen to the well-armed uh, youth 
who finally reach the end of their rope and they realize how bound up they are and they start throwing bombs. What about the tradition? Does the tradition have anything to offer them? Is there a conservative, so-called conservative, I'm not using the word in a political sense, but in, a, in, a, in the literal sense of conserving uh, the heritage. Is there a conservative tradition that has something to say? And here's Auden's answer to that. The ruined, showering with honors, the blind Christ and the mad Madonna. The Gnostics in the brothels treating the flesh as secular and fleeting. The dialect gestai of the rich, which means the learned discussion of the rich at cocktail parties as to which technique is most effective in enforcing labor discipline. What Persian apparatus will protect their privileges still and safely keep the living dead entombed, hilarious, and fed? The disregarded in their shacks upon the wrong side of the tracks, poisoned by reasonable hate. So that's a little litany of what culture is offering to those who might otherwise slide into that terrible uh, sacrificial cult. And Auden says they are all symptoms of one common fate. All of them, the rich and the disregarded, the ruined and the Gnostics, all in their morning, excuse me, all symptoms of one common fate all in their morning mirrors face a member of a governed race. And I would change that word just for our purposes here to a driven race. A typical way to deceive oneself and others about how driven one's life is is to pretend, is to, pretend to be driving, to drive oneself about creation in the closed cab of occupation. But those millions who won't fit in the cab, if they are as pitifully abandoned by the spiritual tradition as the girls in Watts, will discover the metaphysics of the crowd. But Auden seems to be saying that we must find a path that is neither the closed cab of occupation nor the metaphysics of the crowd. That we must listen to and wait for some hint about the Athlon we must not refuse. This concludes Reflections on W. H. Auden's New Year Letter by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.